You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Sportscast. That team won enough to become the villain. We worked for Bill, but we played for Tom. Bill tore Brady's head completely off. There's things there with John that can't be undone. I was just trying to hold it together the best I could. This team will be scrutinized, celebrated for as long as the game of football is played. What is up, everybody? It's Jack. I'm back on the Bench Sportscast Airwaves covering episodes three and four of the Dynasty, the New England Patriots on Apple TV Plus. And uh, let's just jump into it. First couple episodes, really great time. Episode three, titled borrowed time. This is something different than the previous two episodes. One of the things that I really appreciate about this series as somebody who has seen a lot about the team, read a lot about the team, been a fan for this whole run, is this series, it's pretty clear after the first two episodes that we're going to be skipping some stuff. You know, we're going to be skipping games and, and things of that nature. I spoke to it in the first episode about how some of the other series cover large swaths of the history of this run. That is a double-edged sword, because at times it's good to see this at sort of a macro level, right, and understand the arc, this sort of like uh, operatic arc in story in sports. But a lot of nuance is lost in this episode about what was going on at the time, And I have to say, I I do crave a little bit more detail about a few things that occur in this particular chunk of time. But again, they only have so much time, only so much budget to get into things. I understand that, but I will say this episode, while it has great moments in it, it is also a little disappointing at times. I'll get into that in a minute or two here. But as we pick up from episode two, Brady's knocked out. Bledsoe has to come in in relief of him in the AFC Championship game against the Steelers. And Bledsoe comes in and has his hero moment. You know, for for a guy who had such a rough season being injured and then essentially benched for his backup, the fact that Bledsoe came in against the Steelers, lit it up, and got the win is such a great piece of the Patriots' story and about Bledsoe's and Brady's story. You know, one thing that Teddy Bruschi says about Bledsoe in this is how he talks about how difficult it was for Bledsoe, particularly when they start talking about the Super Bowl against the Rams. And he says that Bledsoe could have made things really tough on the team after Belichick decided to start Brady in the Super Bowl. He could have said, you know, this is bullshit and they took my job and this isn't fair. And he could have made a real mess of everything. And he didn't. He decided to support the team, and he supported Brady. And Bruschi says that he believes that's when the idea of the Patriot way really started. You had the $100 million man who put his ego aside, and as upset as he was, and and he was definitely upset, and his wife speaks to this in the documentary as well, he put all that aside, he did what was best for the team, and he showed that that was the right call. That was the right way to move forward. And that, to me, is very interesting, and I think it's something that non-fans either don't know or 
maybe they don't care about as much or, or understand, but it's an interesting part of the story, and I'm glad that it, it got some play here, especially from Drew's own mouth. But I, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself in terms of the structure of the episode. This episode, we get into the AFC Championship game, but we do take a detour, and we spend some time with Kraft talking about how he positioned himself to be able to purchase the team. Now, Kraft, he grew up in Massachusetts. He grew up in Foxborough. It was a dream of his to someday see the Patriots in the Super Bowl. And he was a guy who owned a paper company at the time. He had, uh, he had his kids, his family, and he started making strategic moves to position himself to be able to buy the team. Now, there's a whole history with a Michael Jackson tour that ended up getting canceled that actually sort of opened the door for Kraft to be able to make the purchase at the time that he did. But the more savvy move and the thing that he really should be respected for is that Kraft realized before anybody else that the team plays at Foxborough Stadium and the stadium itself and the parking lot are not owned by the team. But if Kraft couldn't own the team... He could buy the stadium, he could buy the parking lot, and he could dictate pricing to the team. And whatever the team did when they had home games, when they had events, they had to talk to the landlord and Kraft was the landlord. Very smart move on his part because several different buyers came in to purchase the Patriots before Kraft and all of them decided to step away because no matter what happened, Kraft was not selling the property, Kraft was not selling the stadium. So he was going to be a significant factor in whatever financially the NFL and the Patriots were able to do on that property at the time. So by making those purchases, holding that property, and waiting it out, he was the only person in town at that point that could get the team and could make a bid that would work for the former owners and get them out of what they felt was a bad deal at the time. Because one thing that they talk about quite a bit in the first few episodes here is that it's easy to forget about it now, but the Patriots were the, the bottom of the bottom of the NFL. They were bad. They were bad to a level that they were pathetic for a long time. This region had nothing in terms of Patriots' success at all. There was one run to the Super Bowl in 85. Bears obviously won that one. But there was really just a lot of depression, a lot of uh, terrible memories and bad teams, pathetic teams, awful play. Um, there were fights in the locker rooms. There were fights in the stands, the old Sullivan Stadium. I hear stories from my uncles all the time about how that place was the kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of shit would happen there. Just you'd be taking your life in your hands going there for a, a you know, a one o'clock game. Uh, you could probably buy tickets on the way in if they even bothered to check them for you. You'd sit on metal benches in the cold and just get super, super drunk and hopefully not get arrested at the end of the day. I mean, it was, it was kind of a bad scene. It wasn't really um, family-focused at all. It was uh, not good, we'll say. So we get into a little bit more history of the team after Kraft purchases it and then brings in Bill Parcells. And the idea of bringing in Bill Parcells was you had somebody who won some Super Bowls and who could get the team to a good place. But the eventual deterioration of this relationship is detailed by 
Bill Parcells as a talking head in this episode, and Kraft. And it's clear that they had two sort of divergent views of what they wanted to do. Kraft felt that Parcells didn't make decisions in the best interest of the Patriots, and that he was making decisions in his best interest. Whereas Parcells was upset with Kraft that Kraft took away the draft from him and let somebody else control the draft that year, somebody that Parcells didn't think was qualified. And this was the beginning of their rift. In my estimation, I think it's interesting that Kraft doesn't make the same mistake with Belichick after this. And I think that maybe for as bad as that situation ended after a Super Bowl run and a Super Bowl loss with Parcells basically checked out at that game and ready to go and coach the Jets. Um, it's interesting to see that Kraft sort of self-evaluated and realized with his next coach that he, he can't step in and interfere. Um, so I think it was an interesting part of the learning process of knowing how to be a successful NFL owner for Kraft and changed how he made decisions going forward, ultimately for the for the betterment of the team. And we kind of jump around a bit here between the Parcells Super Bowl and then the Pats getting into the, the Super Bowl versus the Rams. And there's a, a lot of interesting stuff in the week leading up to that Super Bowl. Uh, particularly, there was one story that I hadn't heard before, but I guess Lawyer Malloy, when they got to the hotel in New Orleans, he had a room that was just far too small, or he felt it was just not big enough. So Belichick said, hey, take my room, I'll take yours, I don't care, it doesn't matter to me. And that the team actually saw that as a huge kind of turning point, or, or a, a huge source of inspiration that the head coach was willing to do what was in the best interest of the team, even if that meant taking a smaller room at the Super Bowl. Didn't matter to Belichick. He didn't give a shit about the bed that he was sleeping in. But if it meant something to one of his defensive stars, then he was willing to give that up and, and make it happen. And one of the things that you know Adam Vinatieri brings up here is that a lot of the team, it felt like the team owned the team. Kraft owned the team. But it felt at the time as if the players and the coaches and the fans, it was their team and it was their time. And that there was this sort of unifying feeling around the fact that 9-11 had happened recently. And that, you know, Kraft talks quite a bit about how he hoped that the Patriots could bring a sort of togetherness to everybody by going on and winning the Super Bowl. Um, which we know they end up doing. But there are a lot of little stories that get sprinkled in here. One in particular is, uh, you know, there's a YouTube press conference before the performance at the Super Bowl where the Edge is talking to the press and he says, you know, we're not going to comment on the Brady-Bledsoe situation, but I do think Bledsoe has a superior arm and I think if Brady's ankle is uh, hurting a little bit, then maybe that's disadvantage, but blah, blah, blah. Um, as somebody who has seen U2 live, I actually saw them on the tour that they were on when they performed in the Super Bowl right after 9-11, which was pretty wild to see in person. Um, but who ultimately doesn't really like U2 that much at all. And I'm so glad that The Edge is just wrong. So if you want to talk about overrated guitarists, he's on the Mount Rushmore. But that is a different podcast for a different day. So there are a lot of hallmarks of the Patriots' dynasty and my fandom of them in, in moments that I 
are just indelible in my memory. I will never forget them, and revisiting them is like going home. One of the most important memories of the Patriots is their introduction at the Super Bowl. It, it, to you know, I, I'd only been a football fan for a couple of months, but I had been aware of how the Super Bowl went. I mean, I was young, but I remember watching one of the one of the Super Bowls where the Cowboys were in it. I remember one with the Packers. And I remember players being introduced. You know, that was kind of a common thing. Stars come out one by one and, you know, they get to do their little dance or show off to the crowd or whatever. The Patriots did something different. And another one of the talking heads, John Bon Jovi, he talks about this in the exact same way that I feel about it. He, he says, look, the Patriots come out on the field introduced as a team. And to this day, it still to me is one of the most epic, amazing memories that I have, seeing that for the first time. The fact that we get that footage in this documentary in the best resolution possible, uh, man, that's just, that's everything for me. It's so awesome. It's so awesome to see. Uh, absolutely love it. You know, Troy Brown, Adam Vinatieri, Lawyer Malloy, Damian Woody, those guys near the front, Brady and Bledsoe near the back there. Uh, it, it's just, yeah, it's a really special sports memory for me. I love that they have that moment in the documentary. And they were the first ones to do it. They were the first NFL team to say, no, we're coming out as a team. And I, I, something so unifying and so so great about that moment. Um, awesome to watch again. Then some back and forth about the game and the fact that the Patriots got ahead and the Rams came back. And Ernie Adams talks about the fact that in-game he felt that if the Rams got the ball back again that they were going to be in trouble and that they were playing for a tie, essentially, at the end of the fourth quarter. And there's a timeout. Brady goes to the sideline to talk to Belichick and Bledsoe, and Belichick tells him, like, look, just take care of the ball, play for overtime, hopefully we'll do well. And Bledsoe says to him, fuck that, sling it. Like, you're not supposed to be here, we're not supposed to be here, nobody believed in us, just let's go for it. Brady goes out, and he has this sort of methodical drive. And again, if there's another thing that I wish was in this documentary, there's a quote from John Madden when he's commentating on the game. He says, right when the drive starts, he says, I disagree with this, I'd be playing for overtime. And then they move the ball down the field into field goal range. Brady snaps the ball, spikes it, catches the ball with one hand. And Madden... I'll never forget it. I don't know why it's not in the documentary, but he says, what I just saw Tom Brady do is it, 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 it's amazing. Or it's, it gives me chills, I think, is what he says. Uh, it's an incredible sports moment. It's really weird that it's not in this, but again, when you get something that's made by people who aren't fans, I think there are advantages and disadvantages to that. This is one of the disadvantages. Uh, Adam Vinatieri comes up, kicks the ball, Patriots win the Super Bowl. And jubilation, there's happiness, everybody's on the field going nuts and there's a little aside where Robert Kraft talks about the fact that he, if he were if the team were to win he needed to have something ready to go he needed to say something to America in that moment and his trepidation, even thinking about the fact that they might win he didn't want to jinx anything and he has some quote about you know speaking to the devil or something, it's kind of funny but 
Um, but it's it's revealed in this. I, I had read this before that Jonathan Kraft actually wrote the little speech that Robert Kraft said that's become such a famous line. Been lucky enough to hear it six times in my lifetime, but you know, we are all patriots, and tonight the Patriots are world champions. That was the first time he said it, obviously, at that Super Bowl. And it's an incredible moment. You get to see it and kind of live in it again. And up until this point, it's absolute Patriots pornography. It's just everything as a fan that I want to see and experience. Um, it, it's it's here. For, for the things that they are showing, again, there are nuances and details that they have to leave out. Um, some of the stuff against the Steelers, is, is, it doesn't encompass as much runtime as I'd like it to. But, but again, they're kind of nailing the, the, the tone and the feel. Um, and then the final few minutes of the episode, they absolutely fly through the next three seasons. I think in the span of about five minutes... We go from winning one Super Bowl to winning two more. They completely skip over the 2002 season and how that helped forge the team into something stronger. They say nothing about the win streak, which was kind of shocking to me. I can't believe they glossed over that so quickly. And then the episode ends with a tease of the Spygate footage. And, of course, that ends the third episode. uh, With three titles in four years officially labeling the Patriots as a dynasty. Uh, which was incredible to live through. Absolutely incredible. Still incredible to this day. And then we get to the first episode that is uh, tough to watch, is one word. It's complicated. I have a lot of complicated feelings about this episode, but episode four is called Spygate, and you know exactly what that's going to be about. And I understand, in the arc of the Patriots dynasty, Spygate deserves a full episode. It deserves a full dissertation on what went down and how it went down and the hows and the whys. And I'm actually thankful for that. There's a lot that happened at the time. I had feelings at the time. I have feelings now. And I won't say that my feelings about Spygate were changed by this episode, but some of the context under which the team operated after Spygate, and especially Belichick himself, it's sort of illuminating watching this. But the episode starts with the head of security at the Meadowlands. His name is Officer Patrick Aramini. Uh, he's, a, he's a Hoboken, New Jersey, New Jersey guy. Uh, talks a bit about the fact that he had worked undercover and he hated it after a while and needed to be reassigned, gets reassigned to the Meadowlands on game day. And that he was the guy who some of the Jets coaches grabbed the Patriots camera, walked over to and said, hey, these guys are recording us. You know, this isn't right. You need to do something with this. And we get a full breakdown of Spygate and what happened. And for those of you who don't know what Spygate is, the Patriots were caught taping opposing coaches' sidelines, uh, recording their signals on videotape so that they had people on the team who could interpret that stuff, understand what those hand signals meant, and then relay that information in real time to the head coach in order to gain a competitive advantage. Uh, The Patriots were fined. Bill Belichick was fined. No suspensions were handed out. And Roger Goodell, who is a talking head in this episode, pops up as a guy who... What can I say about Roger Goodell? Um, 
This guy's just a shit heel. I will say that his handling of the Spygate situation, in my opinion, it, it, I think it was fair. I think that Kraft did use a little bit of his influence and his relationship with Goodell to make sure that Belichick didn't get a suspension and just got fined. Call that what you will. Um, I don't really care to think about it for too long uh, based on what happened later in Deflategate. I, my opinion of Roger Goodell is absolutely in the toilet. I think that uh, there's a lot to say there, and we'll get there, as uh, GC would say. But for this episode, the, the fact that Goodell handles the situation the way that he does and has the tapes destroyed so that nobody has a competitive advantage arouses suspicion with the other owners and people around the league and fans. It's just a shit situation. Uh, I really appreciate the fact that they included the famous Kraft line of Kraft asking Belichick, what, what percentage does this help us? And when Belichick says 1%, Kraft says to him, then you're a real schmuck. But that is one massive piece of this episode. And, of course, they talk about Eric Mangini, who was the Jets coach at the time, who was one of Belichick's disciples previously. And they really get into the weeds about the fact that this was a turning point for Belichick and that his demeanor and his personality really changed after Spygate and that there was a deep sense of betrayal on Belichick's part that somebody who was from inside the house so to speak, was the one who called him out and told the league about what was going on and and sort of transgressed against him. There are some complicated opinions on the Spygate situation, and Ernie Adams in particular says, you know, he's not going to add anything to this, but that he knows for a fact that other people were stealing their signals, and, you know, he has a certain perspective on that. Scott Pioli... His perspective is pretty interesting because he makes the point that Mangini maybe sort of breaks the code of their uh, quote-unquote omerta, right? With the idea being that when you're in the mafia, you take omerta and you don't speak out against your own kind. And that in this situation, they felt that their coaching and team operation was a bit like an omerta. The fact that Mangini broke that is sort of a, it's just a betrayal. It's a huge betrayal and... um, There's a lot that can be read and seen about Mangini in that situation. But um, it's interesting, you know, I mentioned in the first episode that Belichick's demeanor early on was quite a bit different than it is today. And I never put it together, but it's very clear that Spygate is the thing that caused that. It seems like after Spygate, the way that he felt he was railroaded and he was vulnerable, um, that he was never going to be that again for anybody. And fascinating to watch. But while Spygate and all its fallout is a huge part of the episode, there are two other big pieces of it. Number one is Randy Moss. Randy Moss pops up. Josh McDaniels pops up in this. Man, Randy Moss, uh, he's, he's a funny guy. It, it makes me crave the Patriots having a number one wide receiver again. I know that wide receivers are divas and all that, but man... The great ones are great. And seeing Moss and Brady that season was incredible. For as badly as that season ultimately went, uh, that was there were just magical 
moments in that season. Uh, they were so good. They led the league. They ran up the score on everybody. And I love how the, in the documentary they make the connection that the reason they were running up the score on everybody was the team's way of rallying around their coach and saying, hey, fuck you. We're not winning because of taping signals. We're winning because we're better than you. And they went out and they proved it that season. I, I love seeing that stuff. I love Brewski talking about the fact that now they were the villains and he kind of liked it. Uh, Dante Stallworth pops up here too. A guy that I hadn't thought about in a long time, but had some really critical games with the Pats. Uh, we see Wes Welker in the locker room. He's not a talking head, but he does pop up here and there. Um, and yeah, a lot of faces, a lot of players that you recognize from over the years. Junior Seau has a, a, a couple of... Uh, shots in this um, so that one thing I will say that the documentary does a good job of is if somebody isn't a talking head or isn't the focus of a particular subject I think that they do a good job of at least having incidental shots or cuts to certain people so that if you're a fan or you know who these people are you're going to recognize them and I, I do have to respect them for that because you can't get into everything totally understand um, but yeah that, that was a nice little uh, piece of the puzzle here um, one thing I did want to circle back on when it comes to uh, Spygate, Robin Glazer is this uh, person in the Kraft organization. I think her official title is she's Senior Vice President of Kraft Business Group, and she's involved with the team to this day. Uh, my understanding is that she is involved in a lot of legalese, um, a lot of COVID compliance stuff over the last few years, and it sounds as though she's going to be uh, Senior Assistant to you know, new head coach Gerard Mayo. She's a, a big part of the Spygate situation because the first day that she started there was the day when the NFL came to investigate them for recording the Jets on the sideline. And ultimately, she was the person who was tasked with destroying the tapes. And according to her story, she literally got on all fours with a hammer and smashed the tapes and threw them in the garbage on, you know, at the request of uh, Roger Goodell, uh, which is kind of wild. I... I didn't realize that's how the tapes were destroyed. I, I always thought that Goodell did something with them or incinerated or whatever, but uh, that, was, that was pretty wild. The last part of the documentary is arguably the worst part of the documentary for me uh, total. I can't imagine that there's going to be a section of this 10-parter that's going to be worse than this, but we do, of course, get into the first... Super Bowl against the Giants. I will say, I'll say this. The Patriots' success in the years post the second Giants Super Bowl really did a lot to get rid of my negative feelings around that. But watching this happen again and seeing the Eli Manning play and the David Tyree play in slow motion, Oh, God, it's just such a... It's like opening a wound again. Uh, it sucks. I fucking hate Eli Manning so much. That, look, the David Tyree-ness of it all, is just, it's just luck. It's the maybe the luckiest catch ever in the history of the NFL. But I fucking hate Eli Manning so goddamn much. I, what, a, what a pathetic little fucking dink. Just right place, right time for a guy who shouldn't even be shining fucking shoes of anybody on the Patriots. I, uh, I, I fucking hate that guy. I hate him so much. <laughs> so, watching this, 
it was a little bit difficult. I will say, I have never hated Michael Strahan. I, I actually appreciate the perspective that he gives here, where he's he's talking about it from the perspective of the rest of the country. You know, hearing, you know, Boston sucks chance while the Patriots are taking the field during the Super Bowl. It's easy for me to forget about these things, but that was definitely in the air at the time. I just was on the other side of it. And seeing the current Chiefs team and what they're achieving and how they're moving forward with their dynasty, it's giving me a ton of perspective on, you know, how blinded I was <laughs> at the time to, uh, to just how much they were the bad guys. You know, the Patriots were back then. And uh, it's just... It's it's crazy. It's uh, it's good to watch this again though, and remember how I felt when I saw that. I, I remember being absolutely stunned watching that Super Bowl. Um, it, it just seemed impossible. It still hurts to this day. You know, one popular question that comes up in a lot of forums and podcasts from Patriots fans and in the media is, would you trade another Super Bowl? for the perfect 19-0 season. And I have to say, I I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Um, I, I just don't. I don't know. I, things happen the way they were supposed to. You know, getting to nine Super Bowls and winning six of them is amazing. It's more than most fan bases are going to experience in, in most fans' lifetimes. Um, very lucky to have been able to experience it this way and, and kind of relive it through this documentary. And I'm going to take the bad with the good when it comes to this series. So, uh, rough stretch here to end episode four. Uh, I know there's going to be a little bit more uh, bad to come. But I think it's worth watching. I think it's worth the journey. And, uh, yeah, still enjoying it. So, all right. Uh, those are episodes three and four. Stay tuned. I'll be back next week with episodes five and six breakdowns for you. Again, at Binge Media on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Patreon, and TikTok. If you want to leave a voicemail for the guys, 708-406-9546. If you want to send me an email, or Chad C., BingeMovieHomework at gmail.com. And make sure you're subscribed on Patreon for 5 bucks a month to get all the bonus content, episodes, and good stuff there. I think that's it. Until next time, peace! You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the network and subscribe to the full binge at Patreon.com slash Binge Media. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget. I was going to say, um, <laughs> what did you just say? Binge Media.